Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. On April the 2nd of 1801, during the Battle of Copenhagen, the British fleet was attacking the combined navies of Denmark and Norway. Now this was a pretty massive battle. This was one cool battle, but three British ships had already actually run aground And so the British Admiral, Hyde Parker, sent an order through the signal flags to his Admiral Horatio Nelson to discontinue action and withdraw. But you see, Nelson had a different idea. When he heard his own signalman relay the order, he just simply pretended not to hear him. And he was mesmerized with the thrill of the battle. And he had no intention at all of obeying that order. He was just going to disobey it completely. And he turned to his captain and said, This day may be the last day for us at any moment. And right as he said this, sure enough, a cannonball from the enemy hit the mast of the ship. And splinters were just exploding all around him. This was a stubborn man. He was overly aggressive in his approach to war. He'd already lost his sight in his right eye in a battle before this. So when his own captain on his own ship pressed him again to respond to the admiral's order, Nelson told his flag captain, Thomas Foley, he said, you know, Foley, I only have one eye. I have the right to be blind sometimes. And so then he held up his telescope to his right eye, his blind eye, and said, I really do not see the signal. Now, if you have ever said that you are turning a blind eye, that is where that comes from, right there. It means to ignore information that we don't want to hear. If you're married, you understand what I'm talking about, don't you? You see, I think as Christians, we do this all the time. I think we are guilty of ignoring the truth all the time. The Bible calls it this. It says it's choosing to live like the old man instead of living like the new creation that we are in Jesus Christ. Meaning, instead of living with one good eye fixed on Christ in his word, we turn a blind eye and keep focused on ourselves, fixed on what we think makes us happy in life, and we ignore the truth of God. To ignore what we know to be true, to ignore God's will for us as believers in Christ. This is dangerous, dangerous ground for any believer in Jesus Christ. And this, friends, is directly where Hebrews 3 takes us. In the first two chapters of Hebrews, if you've been with us in our studies, we have seen the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better than the angels. We have seen that Jesus is above all created beings. Why? Because he's God. That's why. But now in chapter 3, the author shifts gears, telling us that since we know who Jesus is, he should be our focus. 
We should have tunnel vision as believers in Christ. Forget about all the other ways you've been looking at God, the author tells us. Forget about your man-made religion. Look to Jesus. This is how chapter 3 starts. He says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who is faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Now, notice the description here. Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. You see, the author does not consider these people to be unbelievers. He calls them holy brethren, men and women cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, forgiven, set apart, and indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. This is telling us that we need to take heed to our calling in Christ because in the future we will share in His reign and in His glory. See, our calling as believers, it's not just earthly. It's not just about our lives here and now. Not just what we're doing today and tomorrow, but it is heavenly. Jesus Christ is the apostle. Why? Simply meaning here, delegate, messenger, one sent forth. We are told to consider Christ. It means actually to fix your mind steady on Christ and let everything else fall by the side. Jesus is the one that God sent to reveal the Father to mankind. But the author takes it another step forward and says that Jesus is also what? Our high priest, telling us that he is the one that represents mankind to God. Jesus is the mediator of men and God. This is our confession of faith. Do you remember what Job said so long ago? He said, God is not a mortal like me, so I cannot argue with him or take him to trial. If only there were a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together. Jesus Christ has stepped in to bridge that gap between God and man. He is the mediator. He is the high priest. And what we see now in the text for the next few verses is that the author compares Jesus to Moses. Because most Jews considered Moses to be the greatest person who has ever lived. Moses was faithful to God. And the author, he tells us in verse 2 that Christ is faithful, just as Moses himself was faithful back when he walked on this earth. And the author is going to use the tabernacle in the Old Testament as his example, because the tabernacle, you see, was the center of all their worship. That Moses was faithful with God's house, the tabernacle, and God's household, the people of Israel. Moses served exactly as instructed by God. He was obedient. He was faithful. He followed what God asked him to do. In the time of Moses, the nation of Israel was the people where God was known to dwell with mankind. God marked his presence with the glory inside the tabernacle, the guiding cloud. Do you remember from the Old Testament? The guiding cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Verses 3 and 4. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is who? God. Don't make these two verses hotter than they have to be. 
still comparing the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to the faithfulness of Moses. And you can see the difference between the superiority of Christ and Moses by comparing a builder and a building itself. No matter how beautiful a building may be, the builder's always greater. He's the one that built it. The creator is always greater. A person has more value than their property. Moses served faithfully with the tabernacle, but Jesus Christ is the one who designed this entire system of worship. Now these verses, if you stop and consider for just a second, these verses are actually a powerful testimony to the deity of Jesus Christ. Because if God built everything and Jesus Christ built God's house, well, then Jesus Christ is God. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. Now watch how good this gets in our next two verses. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken when? Afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now follow this with me. Moses functioned as a servant, preparing something that would serve as a model for a later time, meaning that the tabernacle was a model of the rule and the reign of Christ that will come in the millennium and the new heavens and the new earth. The tabernacle was meant to be a type of the greater realities that will come later. The prophets that followed after Moses spoke more about the coming rule of the Messiah. And a part of the big idea here is that Jesus Christ, when he comes back, he's not going to serve. He will reign. He is not God's servant. He is God's son. He sits on the throne. And the second part of verse 6 is telling us that the church is God's house. It's not about this building, but the people. That's God's house. And Christ, he is the one with the final authority in his house. But what about this statement at the end of verse 6 where it says, Whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now here's where we got to be careful. You have to put this statement into the context of what came before and what is about to come in the rest of the text. You see, the writer is thinking like a Hebrew person. He's thinking about priestly functions and the house of God, the tabernacle in the past, and the church, the spiritual house of God right now. His concern was that these people may drift in their faith. They may lose their focus. They may not remain faithful to God. In 1 Peter 2.5, it tells us that believers are what? Being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through who? Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Paul told the church at Corinth? He said, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? You see, the tabernacle illustrated the house of God. Now, don't make the mistake of many thinking that this in Hebrews is about losing your salvation because if you're redeemed by the blood of Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. And do not make the mistake of thinking that this is about proof of your redemption because this is not. This is about losing the privilege of serving God if you are not walking with God. 
Do you remember the words of Exodus 19.6? God said to Israel, he said this, watch it carefully. He says, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, God's desire for the nation of Israel was for the entire nation to be a kingdom of priests. But then what happened? If you read the backstory in Exodus 32 and Numbers chapter 3, you see that when the people of God built the golden calf at Mount Sinai, one group remained faithful. One group stood strong. One group remained faithful to the Lord. It was the Levites, wasn't it? And so God limited the privilege of being priests to the Levites. Only the Levites were allowed the honor of serving God as priests. But here in Hebrews, here in Hebrews, this is about the future. This is about believers having the privilege of being able to serve God in his coming kingdom. And so to the believer, this is saying, how you live your life now matters not for salvation, but for your future role in the coming kingdom of God. You can forfeit by just being pathetic. You can actually forfeit your privilege of serving in certain roles in the coming kingdom of God. You don't have to do much. Just continue to be pathetic is what the author's saying. Not me. I'm not saying that, people. He's saying that. If you think of priests in the Bible, they represented leadership of directing people towards God. Remember that the Hebrew believers were pulling back. They were pulling back from the Christian community, forsaking the assembly, going back to Judaism because of persecution. And the author is telling us when we do that, when we pull back from identifying ourselves with the church from the body of Christ, if you're in Christ, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, your salvation is secure. But when you start pulling back from the body of believers, you're out of fellowship. Not just with the church, but you're out of fellowship with God. That's not what God wants for you as a believer in Christ. Meaning, you're not acting like the spiritual house of God that Christ is making you to be. So the author is saying, have confidence in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in his hope all the way to the end. Now, if you're following along in your Bible, make your way over to chapter 10 in Hebrews. And the author, he's circling back to this topic again. He's circling back using some of the same wording as in our text. And again, in verse 19 of chapter 10, he calls them brethren. And then in verse 21, he refers to our high priest, Jesus Christ. Pick it up with me again in verse 21. And notice what he says. And having a high priest over the house of God... Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, what is he doing? He's simply calling for them to once again draw near to God. Come back to God. And he goes on. And now these words, as we're about to read, they should remind you of our text back in Hebrews chapter 3. Let's continue. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is in the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as what? As you see the day approaching. 
Draw near to God. Hold fast to the faith. Christ is our confession. He is our hope. And so the question that is really being thrown out there back in chapter 3 is, will you, believer in Christ, hold fast to the end? Jesus Christ is our high priest. But will you continue to remain faithful as a priest to God? Will you continue to serve him? The secure redemption so freely given to you does not guarantee you won't drift away in your service to God. You need to hold fast. You know, for many, many years, scientists were actually baffled by the mystery of floating fire ants. Because when you take just one of them and you put it in the water, it will eventually just struggle and sink. But when fire ants are brought together, here's what happens. They, they sort of just kind of make that mob-type band of floating ants together. They form almost what, what looks like little life rafts in the water to help them survive the floods. Now, in the Brazilian rainforest, they can actually float along like this, traveling for months before they reach dry land. They can go like that for months. Now, here's what scientists actually figured out. They dropped them into containers of water. And the ants, they quickly found each other. And then they started bonding together, coming together, making these little rafts. But how did they do it? Well, you see, every ant actually has claws. And they have little adhesive pads on their legs to grip onto each other. And one researcher said this, At first it just looked like a tangled mess of bodies and limbs everywhere. But the longer you look the more you're able to see the different body parts to see their connections. They use air pockets to keep themselves afloat, and it's almost as if together they become like a super organism. They become something that they're not by themselves. Individuals acting together to create an awareness, to create an ability that no single ant has. You see, do you hear me this morning? That's what the Bible speaks of. Our need to be connected to fellow believers in order to survive and to grow spiritually in Jesus Christ. Because alone, I am telling you, you will sink. But clinging and growing together in Christ, we can ride out any storm. Author Carmen Berry wrote about this. She wrote about the reason she quit going to church. Maybe you've been there. Listen to what she said. She was disappointed with the other members of the church who failed to act like Christians. But eventually, she said God helped her to grow. And she realized that the failure and the problems of other Christians is exactly why she needed to return. Listen to her words. Quote, I had overlooked one essential factor, that I am as finite and flawed as everyone else. When a friend committed suicide, I realized I could become too cynical, too lost, and too alone in my own life. I needed a church. I needed a community of believers. I needed to live my faith and visit my doubts. Something happens there that simply does not happen when you're alone in prayer or on the internet. And as much as I hate to admit it, she said, my faith is an enhanced and enlarged when in relationship to other less than perfect human beings. That's what Hebrews is saying. 
It's calling us back, back to one another, back to our responsibility in Christ. And now what the author is going to do in the text is he's going to quote from Psalm 95 to remind these Hebrew believers about what had happened to the people of Israel when they had failed to believe the promises of God at Kadesh Barnea. See, he's still trying to bring these people back to a closer walk with God. But he wants them to understand how serious it is for God's people to neglect the revealed will of God. And if you stay with me in this text, and if you follow along, you're going to find a beautiful promise here in this passage for the believer in Jesus Christ. Now let me just remind you of this story, and then we're going to read Psalm 95, and then at the end we'll put it all together. If you remember, the children of Israel had finally been freed from who? From the bondage of Egypt. This was the exodus that's being referred to. God had promised a land flowing with milk and honey. And the people were excited because they were finally going to have a homeland. Some of you finally have a home. You can relate. For over 400 years, the Israelite people lived in Egypt under the oppressive hand of the pharaohs. But God likes to bring, hear me, God likes to bring his people to a point of decision, a point of testing. God had given them the promise of the land, but somehow, because we're thick-headed in the, in the skull, somehow it never occurred to the people that God expected them to actually have a part in the work of taking the promised land. That God was looking for them to do something. God was looking for them to be faithful. So let's read this, starting in verse 7. And he's just quoting from this psalm. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my work forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation. And said, and they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Now, there's a strong warning here. Very strong warning here. And he warns in verse 7, if you hear his voice today, we should not harden our hearts. That's the warning. Then in verse 13, we are told to encourage one another while it is called what? Today. The word today means while time lasts. You know, maybe it was better in the old days when they had those old-timey hourglasses that they used to keep time. They'd just flip them over back and forth. Now it's just numbers. It just clicks by on your phone. You don't even realize how much time is going by. And it gives the illusion that time goes on forever. But the warning here is that time is running out. Don't be so prideful to think that your time is not running out. People put off the things that matter. People put off living for Jesus Christ. But the warning is, time is short. Time is running out. Now in Psalm 95, the words before this are call, actually, to bow down, to worship God. And this is what the author of Hebrews wanted for the people. That's really what he wanted. He wanted the people to avoid the same sins as that of the people of Israel before. 
And the start of our text is quoted in verse 7. It actually begins like this in Psalm 95. Read it with me. It says, For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture. You know this from the song, don't you? And the sheep of His hand today, if you will hear His voice. Now, people miss this key detail right here in the rest of Psalm 95. Because Psalm 95 is actually telling us something, that this is written to believers. This is written to the house of God. And the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it actually brought in a time of a new exodus. The Hebrew believers were suffering. And the writer didn't want them following the pattern of those who had gone before. You see, being discontent rebelling against God and missing out on the blessings of Christ. He's saying, learn from the mistakes of Israel that it's possible, it's more than possible to begin well and end poorly. But here we get to a beautiful promise. And if you understand actually what Hebrews is about to cover, it can change your entire walk with Jesus Christ. Now for the nation of Israel... Rest meant the enjoyment of all that God had promised the nation. And here's a key detail in Hebrews. It wasn't just about getting into the land. You will misunderstand Hebrews 3 if you think that. Because the next generation of Israelites, they did enter the promised land. And they experienced the rest that God had promised. Why? Because they chose to trust. They chose to obey God. Joshua 1.13, just one of many, many places we see this in the Old Testament. It says, remember the word which Moses, a servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is giving you, look at it with me, two things there, rest and is giving you this land. You see, the Lord gave them both. He gave them the land and he gave them rest. And if you misunderstand this, that the rest of the Israelites is just to be getting into the promised land, if that's what you think, you're going to completely misunderstand the beautiful promise that's here for believers. It's not just about getting into heaven. That's what I'm telling you. God is calling you deeper here, deeper in your faith. Rest for the Israelites meant that they didn't have to strive anymore. They could relax. They could relax in the presence of God. They could trust God. And in the certainty that there is no reason to have fear in the future. Now for the Christian, it is a rest that is built on faith. It is the enjoyment of all that God has promised to us. You see, this is so much more than just about getting into heaven. I hope your faith in Jesus Christ goes deeper than that. This includes the rewards that God himself promises to those who have been faithful. But believers are more than capable of hardening their hearts. They can grow complacent. They can neglect their Savior. They can neglect the life that's been given to them. This is exactly what the nation of Israel did. They had been delivered from the hand of Pharaoh. God had provided for them time and again in the nation, for the nation in the wilderness. But what did they do? They refused to trust in God's provision over and over again, even though they were his people. So what did they complain about? Well, they complained about a lot of things, didn't they? If you read it, they complained about their leaders. They complained about their food. It says that they became bitter. They were upset with God's leadership. They were upset with God's provision for them. In Exodus 17, when they had no water, they questioned God's presence and his goodness. Then in Exodus 15, they complained because the water was bitter. In Exodus 16, it was a lack of bread. Numbers 11, they were tired of the manna and complained. Complaining because they didn't have meat to eat. 
Complaining again in Numbers 20 because of a lack of water. Israel tested God over and over again because she refused to trust in him. They had seen God work. He'd already delivered the nation, but they had the audacity, they had the pride, the arrogance of man to demand more from God. And their lack of trust, it actually provoked God. They sat in judgment of God for 40 years. And the text tells us that God became angry with that generation when Israel refused to enter into the land at Kadesh Barnea. When they were all about to kill Joshua and Caleb, do you guys remember the story? They were about to kill those two guys because they were the two that actually had trust in God. And then Numbers 14, it tells us that the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle before the congregation of Israel. People always went astray in their hearts and have not known his ways. They wandered away from their God. And in his mercy, what did God do? We actually allowed them to live, but they would have to live out in the wilderness now, never at peace, never at rest. And could it be that all of those people who died in the wilderness were unbelievers? Were they all just unbelievers who eventually just died and went to hell? And I would tell you that no, it cannot be because Exodus 15, 13 tells us this about them. It says, you in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have what? Redeemed, You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. See, God tells us he considered them redeemed. They had a failure to believe. Yes, they did, but it wasn't about a failure to believe in the Messiah for everlasting life. It was a failure to believe that God would bring them into the promised land. This was a faith issue, to be sure, but it wasn't regarding their justification, their salvation. It was a faith issue regarding their mission that God had for them. But if God disciplined his people in the Old Testament for failing to live up to the calling that God had put on their lives, shouldn't we, dear church, expect the same when we do the same thing? Verse 12 in Hebrews. Beware, brethren, do you see the warning? Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. In verse 1, it was holy brethren. And now the author refers to them as brethren. He's writing to believers. They had come to faith in Jesus Christ, but now they were drifting. Now they were departing, going back to those Mosaic laws that they loved to follow. Meaning, saved by faith, but not living by faith. Look carefully at the wording of verse 12 in your Bibles. What were they in danger of departing from? You see, if this was unbelievers or just simply people professing Christ, like many today claim it is, it would be departing from actually dead doctrine. But the text says they were in danger of departing from the living God. An unbeliever does not have a relationship with God. The Bible tells us they're alienated from God. They're enemies with God. So if this was unbelievers, they could not depart from God because they've left long ago. They're aliens with God. You have to have a relationship with God before you can actually drift. This is believers leaving behind their first love. It was a temptation to go back into following all those man-made rules that they had added on to the laws of Moses, actually, is what they wanted to follow. But what about us? 
What about us today? Well, today the temptation would be for the believer to be tempted to go back into living a life of compromise, to enslave yourself to sin, even though Christ has liberated you. This is a lack of trust in Christ, and it actually shows the wickedness of the heart, even in the redeemed. And that is what verse 13 is telling us. It's telling us that sin is deceitful. You see, the more you walk down that road of sin, the more it will lead you astray, little bit by little bit. And eventually, you as a believer in Christ can actually end up with a hardened heart. And this is what happened to Israel as they wandered through the desert. Israel had made such a pattern of sin that by the time they got up to the promised land, they had actually given up on the promises of God. And that, dear church, is why we're supposed to come together. We're supposed to come together not to judge one another, but to exhort, the author says, one another daily in the faith. It literally means coming alongside one another, encouraging one another in their walk with Christ because sin is deceptive. What do we do? We make excuses. We try to justify our own sin. And the author's saying, hey, time is short. Redeem the time. Get started today while you can because time is so short. Because when you start looking to help others, you often end up making your own walk with Jesus Christ stronger. But hear me, if your pride is so strong, if you don't care about the other believers in your life, if you don't care about the other believers here in this church, enough to reach out to them in love, to encourage them, then I want to encourage you to examine your faith, examine your heart, because that doesn't sound like what the Bible describes as strong faith. That does not sound like what the Bible describes as faith grounded in the love of Jesus Christ. You see, if this church is going to continue to grow, and I pray that it does, I pray for that every day, but this is what we need right here. This is what we need. Believers looking to lead the body by reaching out to one another in love. Leaders looking to encourage. Leaders looking to build up the saints of God, both when they're here, daily, it says, and when they're not. You see, I think every single person in this room longs for a church like that, where the love of Christ is leading his people towards one another, not apart. Verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence Steadfast to the end, while it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Verse 1 identified the audience as partakers of the heavenly calling. But here, this is just building upon this. This is something more than just redemption, more than just heaven bound. This is partaking in the glorious future of Christ in the future kingdom of God. Not just getting there, move past that point in your faith, but having an active role in the future kingdom of God because we have learned to already serve here. Sharing, partaking in the reign of Christ because we have learned to persevere here. But to lose trust in the Savior, to lose our confidence in Christ, to become unfaithful to Christ means that you and I can lose the privilege of serving with Christ in the future. We begin the Christian life by faith. And we're to continue the Christian life by faith. 
And the author is saying, finish the race. Don't quit. Don't give up. Run towards the final victory in Christ. And then in verse 15, the author just circles back again and again reminds them of Psalm 95, which we already read, and reminds them again of the failure of Israel at Kadesh Barnea when they refused to believe the promises of God about the promised land. Now watch now how the author wraps up the chapter starting in verse 16. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses. Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of what? Unbelief. See, the author is now explaining to them Psalm 95. And if you want to understand what happened in the Exodus, you need to recognize that the Bible identifies them as believers. Now, I've been hounding on this for a reason, because it matters. It really does. When they were just coming out of Egypt, Exodus 14.31 teaches this. It says, Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord and believed faith in the Lord and his servant Moses. The people of Israel, they died in the wilderness as believers, but they did not lose their salvation. Even Moses, even Aaron, even Miriam were all buried outside of the promised land. But redeemed by faith, they did not lose their status as a redeemed nation. They did forfeit for themselves a life of peace and a life of rest. They had to wander in that desert for 40 years. You see, saving faith secures life, but Hebrews is talking about walking by faith, living out our trust. Every redeemed child of God has saving faith, a secured eternal life in Christ, but only some believers, only some of us are ever going to learn to develop that consistent faith walk. And here is the part that people misunderstand. Here is the part that they misunderstand and miss in this text. Even though the men and women of Israel were redeemed, they died out there. They died in the wilderness. They failed to enter into blessing that could have been theirs because they refused to believe that God would defeat their enemies and bring them into the rest in the promised land. Their sin led them to forfeit the rest that they could have had in the land that was promised to them. Meaning, here comes the application. It is possible to wander in your faith. It is possible to wander around in the wilderness of frustration. It is a lack of fulfillment. It is self-pity. And it is possible for the believer in Christ to live in a way where they fail to trust the promises of God. I've done it, and many of you will admit that you've done it. But without faith, what does the Bible say? It's impossible to please God. And that's going to cost you, friends. It will cost you the rest and the peace of Christ that can be yours right now, knowing that Christ has already overcome the enemy. And it can cost you the future rewards that Christ so freely will give you if you're just found faithful to him. The rest spoken of here in this beautiful text is the inheritance beyond salvation that God wants to give to his believers when they come into his eternal kingdom. But here's what happens. Here's what we do. You see, it starts with a simple doubt about God. 
You face something difficult. You face an uncertain time in your life. But then your doubt leads to complaining, which leads to a break in fellowship with God because you cannot be at peace with God while lacking trust in him. It's impossible. And then your heart, it begins to harden. And then you rebel against him. And somewhere at the beginning of our troubles, we face the temptation to think that God has abandoned us. That somehow he saved us, he redeemed us, he gave us life, he gave us everything. And that now somehow just because we have a problem and a bump in the road, that somehow God doesn't care anymore. That he brought us in the wilderness just to die. But Hebrews is saying, no, that's not true. That's dangerous ground to be on. Hebrews is telling us that that's exactly when we need to return to his promises found in his word. On March the 27th of 1977, Paul Heck and his wife were sitting on a Pan Am 747 and they were waiting for takeoff when an incoming plane came through the fog at 160 miles an hour and it slammed into the side of their plane. The collision, it sheared the top off the 747 and it set this plane on fire. And there was 396 passengers on board. And the ones that weren't hurt in the immediate impact, most of them had a strange reaction. They just sat there. They kind of froze in place, not really sure what just happened to them. Well, Paul's wife said later that when the plane hit, her mind just went blank. She felt like a zombie. But not Paul. Paul had a different course. He went into action. He immediately knew what to do. He unbuckled his seatbelt. He grabbed her hand, told her to follow. Then he led his wife through a hole on the left side of the plane. And in an interview after, Paul talked about how most people after the crash just sat in their seats like everything was fine. Even though another plane had just come down the runway and smacked him real good and hit him, and the cabin was completely ripped apart and on fire and filled with smoke. But here was the difference. Before takeoff, he was actually one of those guys who got out that little stupid card on the plane, that diagram that nobody ever reads. Well, he did. He studied the plane's safety diagram in the seat pocket before they took off. And so when that other plane hit, he knew exactly what to do. He was prepared to make a decision. And then he headed for safety. See, Hebrews 3 is telling us that some believers are going to be ready. Some believers are going to be trained up with a single focus on Jesus Christ, ready to stand against the sins of the heart, ready to stand by their brothers in Jesus Christ and encourage them in their walk, in their faith ready to guard against the danger of drifting away, prepared for this world because our solid foundation in Christ, because they know that there is a rest that can come for the believer in Christ. And it is built on faith, built on a trust in Christ, built on a trust in his promises because they have taken the time to get to know Jesus Christ through his word. It brings a peace and it can bring a calm in the storm. The joy of the Lord is found there, and for the believer in Christ, so is ours. Hebrews is telling us to have that single focus on Jesus Christ. And the old hymn, it sums it up so well. The course goes like this. You know the words. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Notice these last three lines. And the things of the earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory 
and grace. I pray often that you will find God's rest in your life because living in His grace, it changes everything. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.